Say you're an educator, just sitting around on a Friday night, petting your dog, enjoying a cup of cocoa, and surfing the web while you wait for the new episode of Scandal to come on. You scroll down your Twitter feed and notice that a bunch of your fellow EdTech-loving educators are all talking about this cool new tool. You click a few links, skim a few blog posts, and yeah, it looks like this cool new tool could really be engaging for your students. You bop on over to the website or download the app, and then boom, it happens. You're asked to sign up for an account, and the fine print reads, must be 13 years or older. If you're teaching fifth grade or younger, a wall has just sprung up between your students and a new and potentially revolutionary technology. And what about students in sixth or even seventh grades who aren't yet 13? What happens when the rest of their class can sign up, but they can't? After a few moments thought, despite all the possibilities the cool new tool could represent, you close the browser window or delete the app. Educators are increasingly faced with this dilemma as technology proliferates and the companies producing the technology demand users create accounts to use their services. But this new digital divide around the magic age of 13 must exist for a reason, right? In this episode of the 21st Century Podcast, Professional Development Coordinator Susan Hennessy sat down with Research Fellow Mark Olofsson to hash out some of the issues around the push and pull between digital access and digital privacy in the bold new age of EdTech. Enjoy. Yesterday I was working with a, a teacher who was excited about her fifth grade class and she'd been using Google Maps with them and having them pin some of their travel locations in the summer and it was really an engaging piece for the students but something happened in terms of the maps and so she was having some difficulty. She's using a learning management system and embedded in that learning management system was another tool called MyHistro. We looked at it and we were so excited about it but then of course the first thing you do when you're teaching fifth graders is say what's the terms of service in big bold letters, second paragraph, under 13, not available. And we did everything we could to try to figure out workarounds for that. We thought if they were going through the learning management system, was there more protection? Did they potentially have more protection because they were logging in with their Gmail accounts and they were Google Apps for Education School? Uh, we thought about contacting the, um, the principal. We were sort of really trying to just bypass this concern and this worry um, just for practical uses. And I had to step back and say, well, wait a minute, maybe we shouldn't do that. Mm. What's happening with this data and how do we protect it and keep kids safe? Well, I mean, and this is a, especially the under 13 issue, this is a thing that we run into a lot when, when we're thinking about, you know, kids and their data. And there's a reason why that under 13 piece is in there, right? I mean, it's for uh, protection of, of the students of people that age. And, you know, we think about, we do, we get so used to supplying our data everywhere, right? Um, we have accounts with Google, we have accounts with apps, most certainly. And um, I think that it is important to think about where's that data going, and especially in our work, uh, when we're working with students, uh, where's their data going, and the different ways that, it, that, it, that it's used. Mm -hmm. So when I, when I first say about sort of safety for kids, it's not necessarily about online predators, per se, it's more on what's happening with every click that they make, the message that they're giving, and where that data is going. Yeah, and, I, and so certainly, and 
you know, when we think about this data, it first plugs into a great big advertiser's database, right? Because Google collects all this information, and Google now said that they won't be going through student emails in order to um, be mining it for advertisements, as they do with your regular Gmail. They go through the content, and they're like, oh, you're talking a whole bunch about trips to Scotland. Let's shoot you advertisements for trips to Scotland. And they had gotten called out for doing that with... Uh, with student emails, and they said that they're not going to do it anymore, but still, that's a sort of concern, yeah? Big concern, and I wonder if people even knew that that's what they were doing when the students were, you know, the student emails were accessible. I, I think it took me by surprise to know that they were running through my emails. I thought for a long time the only reason I was getting marketed to is because of the clicks of the websites I was going to. Mm -hmm. I had no idea my emails were um, fodder for doing keyword searches for something like that. So yeah, I just wonder about if, if, if we were to ask students if they would care, first of all. Um, sometimes there's a convenience piece about being advertised to and marketed in that way. There is something about that. I love the ability to log on and have all of my, um, my resources available via the cloud for any of the Apple versus Google or Microsoft products. Although, Microsoft Cloud? I don't know. Maybe they're getting there. Um, I love that convenience, but at the same time, I feel... Uh, how much data do I want to give about what I do for that convenience? But I'm an adult, and I, I have that ability to kind of step back and make those decisions. An example I sometimes give kids is I don't like very many things on Facebook. When I say like, I mean actually clicking yeah, the button. Yeah. <laughs> because I actually don't want them to mind me for that. I'm not, I'm not interested in that at all. But I don't carry that same kind of, I don't know if it's skepticism, into uh, signing up for an app, like saying, my yeah. histro, they could take anything they want because they're giving me something that's important back. I'm sometimes making those decisions for the kids. Mm, yeah. And, you know, I, I think that it is, you bring up the benefits of, of having stuff up in the cloud. And when we think about, you know, it is incredibly useful to be using, you know, Google Drive with students because all of their things can live in a certain place. They can get access to it at home, at school, they can collaborate via the cloud, they can um, turn things in via the cloud, they can communicate with teachers, and um, they can save, you know, work that they do in different apps and such in the cloud, uh, and then some of that, you know, uh, it's, it's incredibly useful, and it, it really makes these tools, um, it, I mean, it escalates these tools to being far more useful than they would be if they were, um, sort of, if you were storing information on devices. I read in uh, a piece on the um, Boston Globe by Jessica Myers that fewer than 7% of districts that they contacted when they were doing some research into this, um, into cloud service providers restrict the sale or marketing of student information. 7% mm. restrict that. So think about that number. Um, so sometimes when I think about cloud pieces, I go right to Google. And I think, well, Apple doesn't really do something similar to that. Apple is proprietary, and they lock everything down, and you're buying their product, and so you don't necessarily have to worry about that. But most schools who are using Apple products also integrate with, with, with everything that's drive-based. So it's not as if you can kind of pick one universe, if you would, and decide about that. And I mean, the as far as um, Apple's cloud service, they've had serious breaches lately. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, that is troublesome as well if you think about not only uh, does, is this data used for, for advertising, mm -hmm. but not only is this data used, you know, for sailing. It does, man, it does get sold. Mm -hmm. It's crazy how that happens. <laughs> um, but uh, 
also then it's the possibility that even if it's even if you're a district that's opting out, right? Uh, and that's only seven percent, which means that flip side is ninety-three percent don't opt out. Um, but even that seven percent, even opting out, there's still um, that data is still out there to be to be hacked and pulled down, which is also kind of troublesome. So if the new iPhone is really much more secure, they're saying from hackers, right? just the physical tool itself, and that Apple can't even go into the your iPhone and get that data even for police, but it can be grabbed when it's being transferred from the phone to the cloud service mm -hmm. via a middleman. That's pretty scary. So what is the problem with you know all of that data being aggregated and sold? Well, I mean, I. I so we talked a little bit in the last podcast episode. Was it which one? Was the last podcast episode where we talked about um, uh, the benefits, like when large corporations provide a whole bunch of benefits that they yep. definitely have a bottom line. Yeah. Um, so when <laughs> when your large your apples, your Googles, and stuff, they provide a lot of things. Right. Um, we talked about how Apple will provide devices at a discount or even free rate for um, for schools to use, and that's been part of their business model for decades. Um, that there's they're always getting something bottom line out of it, right? And so as they are providing a cloud service, as they are um, you know giving you all these great apps for education, they they're keeping a bottom line, and that bottom line is the amassing and selling of data. That's right. that's one of the ways that they're um, they're getting back from it, right? That's their whole business model. Absolutely, and that and they're making users by putting devices in kids' hands. But what are you gonna do? Um, but uh, so, uh, if somebody's going to pay money for it, they see a value in it, mm -hmm. right? And they see a value to advertising to those folks. They see a value to um, knowing who uses these things, to be able to target them with products and be able to think, make decisions, um, conduct market research, um, which, I mean, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's definitely benign at best. It's mm -hmm. not beneficial, I feel, to our students to have their data amassed and sold. Right. Um, best case, it doesn't hurt them. Worst case, it's really intensely targeted at them, um, and that people know the people who buy this data start to build up profiles and know everything about a kid. And I think that if that kid, if that student doesn't know that that's going on, then I, I don't think that that's okay. I think that they should know that, and then I also think that the teacher should know that, mm -hmm. right? So we can make informed decisions. Maybe the parents as well. Yeah, probably, definitely the parents as we're dealing with the, we're dealing with minors, and so it's it, it's it's about knowing where your stuff is going, knowing who's going to have access to your data, and I think that you know the more information you have, the better you can be about making critical decisions. Mm -hmm. So part of that data is, is the clicks, the, where, where kids go when they're searching online. What they're saying in their email exchanges and probably chat exchanges and all that. Mm -hmm. Their location. Mm -hmm. okay. Trying to think of other things that might all be pulled together. Because the flip side of what we started to talk about with this technology is not just the cloud-based piece, it's the, the, uh, the idea that we could keep track of student data about their learning, their learning process, mm -hmm. 
how they learn best, where they are in a progression on understanding certain grammatical features, say, and then being able to target um, applications and, and activities and services to their very needs. I mean, that seems to be the hope for a lot of this. So my, we've been talking a lot about the, sort of the bad part, but what happens when you flip it on its head and you say, we could mine that data with kids to be able to be more responsive to their needs. So I kind of want to live in both worlds and figure out the best way to do it. Well, I mean, I think that's a very interesting question for education research because we can start to, it's a different way for us to observe student learning, right? Mm -hmm. And you're absolutely right by seeing, you know, which of those uh, linked words do they click on to find a definition for? We start to be able to figure out if they're using all their resources and if they're start to, you know, be predictable in how they're using those resources, we can start to target instruction, right? We, maybe we can start to think about maybe these things should be presented in a different way, in a more effective way. We can build up subgroups of learners. We know that, you know, this group sorts of, like, really minds deep every time they go after something. This group sort of, like, really responds better to interactive video and being able to create... Um, and make their own meaning out of things. And so I think you're absolutely right. It, it could be incredibly valuable. In the age of big data, when companies strive to learn as much as possible about their users, it's easy to feel backed into a corner when trying to protect students' privacy while still providing them with a technology-rich learning experience. Should companies that market educational technology tools be held to higher standards of data privacy than in other arenas? Should we not use technology by companies unless they publicly commit to not data mining students' service accounts? Or is there a better, as yet undetermined solution to data privacy as a whole? Leave us a comment and let us know how you deal with your data privacy, whether you're an educator, administrator, concerned family member, or student. We really want to know what you think. I'm Audrey Homan, and this has been an episode of the 21st Century Classroom, the podcast of the Tarrant Institute for Innovative Education. Thank you to Susan Hennessy and Mark Olofsson for tackling this thorny subject. And thanks also to Guilty Pixel, whose Creative Commons licensed music you can hear in the background. Check them out at soundcloud.com slash guiltypixel, and check us out as well. You can keep up to date with the Tarrant Institute by subscribing to our blog, at blog.tarrantinstitute.org. Thank you.